Peace, peace, and welcome to another exciting installment of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we believe that if you can own Monday morning, you can own the week. If you can own the week, you can own the year. And if you can change your year, you can change your life. So today I have uh, a young man that has been following my lead ever since I came on the political scene. <laughs> now, I truly love this brother. He's uh, doing the good work on behalf of the people of District 10. Before that, he was doing the good work on behalf of the youth and families of San Francisco, which he, he continues to do as supervisor of District 10. Uh, before that, he was doing the good work uh, in several different capacities that I hope we'll get into. Um, right now, as a supervisor, he's making national waves for the pushes he's uh, embarking on to advance racial justice for the black community, uh, to improve conditions for workers, and to ensure that you know the little guy has a shot in the rough and tumble place of San Francisco. Shamal Walton, welcome, brother. <laughs> Thank you so much, man. It's good to be here with you uh, always. As you know, we, we've been able to get a lot of work done together, and so it's exciting to have this conversation this afternoon. Yeah, so are you joining us from, joining us from City Hall? I am. I'm right here in my office. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about your last election before we get into some of the current uh, issues. So you won in 2018. Is that correct? Correct. Talk a little bit about that race. What happened? Well, you know, it, it was actually an exciting time. Uh, I was actually running for office while we were fighting hard to make change on the Board of Education, as you mentioned. And it was a time period where a primary focus here in the city, obviously, was affordable housing and making sure that we did everything we could to stop the out-migration in the Black population and provide opportunities for folks to come back and to really just make sure that we had the maximum amount of affordable housing in our communities. Fortunately, uh, being on the Board of Education, able to address some of the gaps and issues that exist for our young people, we were doing that work already, as well as serving as the executive director of Young Community Developers, had already developed all affordable projects in District 10, uh, had provided so much support and thousands of jobs to individuals from District 10. So as we look at the primary issues uh, and concerns of the city and the district, particularly at that time period, we were already in a position and in a place where we were able to address those, those issues. And so we ran on that platform of someone with experience someone with leadership ability, and someone who would really come into City Hall and get to work right away. And fortunately, uh, the voters felt that way. Uh, we had a lot of folks organized in the community to support our election, uh, including um, uh, eight members of the Board of Supervisors at the time. And we ended up winning. And like we promised, we got right to work. And so just excited and humbled to be in this position where we can really make some change for for folks in community and for folks in the district. The audience that has been connected to Cook on Monday morning is, is starting to like be national and international. So people may not have any idea what a board of supervisors is or what District 10 is. Can you kind of pay the picture of District 10 for people that may not know? Definitely. Well, in terms of uh, the board of supervisors itself, we are the legislative branch here in San Francisco. So we have a mayor uh, and 11 members of the board of supervisors. We make all the laws, we have some commission appointments, and we also uh, work to approve the budget with the mayor as well. And among many other things, those are 
basically the gist of our duties. Uh, I cover uh, the southeast sector of San Francisco, District 10, which consists of Baby Learners Point, Trail Hill, Little Hollywood, Dog Patch, Visitation Valley, Sunnydale. Uh, my district has the largest population of Black folks still left in San Francisco. So we're over 20% Black population, and yet we are in a city of less than 5% Black people. We also have some of the biggest, uh, some of the largest public housing communities here in my district. And actually, uh, four of our housing developments are undergoing revitalization right now. Uh, so those old dilapidated buildings that we have seen for years where my family is from, where I originally come from, are now being transformed into uh, beautiful and better places for our folks to live in our communities. And so that has been uh, something that we've been excited about. But our district is really the last frontier for Black people. A lot of growth in, in my district because we have the most amount of land available to build. As you know, San Francisco, we've always been on top of each other. And out here in the southeast sector of San Francisco, uh, we have the most amount of land available for building. Uh, we also have the worst pollutants that exist here in San Francisco. We have a formal neighbor shipyard base as well as we had several PG&E plants. And so in terms of pollution, in terms of the risk factors of what affects our environment negatively, uh, we have the worst, the worst impacts in, in our community here in District 10. So a lot of our work, of course, is to fight against that. But that is primarily my district as a whole, last frontier for Black folks, a lot of pollutants and environmental hazards that we're fighting against and trying to clean up, and a lot of opportunity, uh, which gets me excited about my role because we have so much resiliency and so, so much opportunity for the future. Thank you for that. Uh, now that we got the formal- formalities out of the way, let's get into the drama. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, Karen, why do you do Karen like that? First of all, I, I assume you're referring to uh, my caution, racially exploitative non-emergency phone calls act, uh, which really says, listen, we're tired of folks making arbitrary non-emergency phone calls to weaponize the police against black people and people of color. There's been so many examples that have been caught on video uh, these last couple of months and last couple of years. But the reality of it is false accusations for black people have led to death. If we go back to Emmett Till and what happened with him in Mississippi, uh, a white woman made a false accusation and it ended up to lead to his lynching and his death and he was only 14 years old. And so we can't have things like that happen. Uh, the fact that someone sat on George's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds actually was the result of a emergency call to police officers for a counterfeit bill. And we have to look and sit back and say, listen, we're not going to allow you to call the police just because you're racist, because you're prejudiced, because you're scared of a certain type of people, and then let it lead to negative consequence. And there's nothing that happens to you for making that arbitrary phone call. And so the Caring Act leads to civil penalties and, and fines of at least $1,000 if something happens to someone who violates the Caring Act. Uh, there's also a state law right now that's being uh, going through the state legislature by Assemblymember Rob Bonta that would also have 
criminal and civil penalties for someone who would violate the statutes of the Karen Act and make a phone call to police based on someone's race, gender, sexual orientation, or any other protected class. And so once that criminal penalty is made uh, opportunity by the state, then we will be able to also insert that into our legislation because we can no longer allow people to weaponize police. Uh, that leads to dire consequences for folks of color. And people need to realize that and understand that and have consequences if they're going to do something like that. You got a, a lot of deserved national attention because of the name of the act. And at the time when we're recording this, just in case somebody's watching this years from now, uh, Karen, the, the name Karen has become synonymous with like, I don't even know how to define it. It's kind of like obnoxious, like white women that uh, use their privilege to, you know, interrupt, advance, like cause harm to, to black people. But I actually first heard about the name Karen from a teacher. Like a teacher was telling me, you know, her kids don't respect her. They keep calling her Karen. And I was like, oh, what's, what's that mean? <laughs> it's just like a, a universal name for all white men when they call her Karen. And so, um, so, you know, I, when I saw the name, I was like, that's my man. That's your man, you know, because, all right, so the issues behind it are real. Like, I, I have had encounters, like a dispute with a neighbor or whatever. It was like, well, I'm going to call the police on you and they're going to believe me because you black, right? Like, it's a real thing. Um, and so the, the reality behind what you're doing is incredibly important. And the name is incredibly hilarious. <laughs> so. but, you know, like, like I tell uh, folks who complain about maybe this name being connected to a particular person, uh, et cetera, this is really about you know, what, what, what the law is intending to fight uh, and what we need to do to make change. And this is not directed towards a particular person. Uh, people obviously make their own inferences when you, when you push legislation and pass legislation. But, you know, for me, it's really about the end outcome, and that's to stop people from making these racist, arbitrary phone calls that get people like you and me locked up and possibly killed uh, just because someone has an issue with a particular race. So you don't have you don't have to go in on this on the name thing. I can do it for <laughs> you. <laughs> <You're> just, <laughs> um, yeah, having known you, I knew that you would uh, get to get that seat and address stuff that was that wasn't popular to address. And um, and I also knew that, like you know, you you're a person that's kind of like very much hands on. Before COVID, before the onslaught of George Floyd, before the murder of George Floyd, and all these incidents with this like name called Karen, like white women, you know, the barbecue Becky. There was like a bunch of social media things that went viral over uh, crazy incidents. You were advancing this discussion about reparations. And, um, and it's kind of one of those things that people really don't want to touch. Like universal basic income wasn't really reparations, right? Um, there's not a lot of black people in the city. And so the political, just as somebody thinking about the political calculation for you to go in on reparations in a city like San Francisco, um, it didn't seem like it was about like political advancement. It seemed like a risk, right? And, um, but you did it and I wasn't surprised you did it, but, uh, you know, I appreciate it also that you did it. So can you talk a little bit about what your thought process was behind that and where it is right now? 
Yeah, well, one, just in terms of, you know, even taking political risks. I mean, if, if you look at this and, and you know this, um, I was elected in 2018. It's already 2020. Uh, so almost two years has gone by. And if we are going to say we're, we're coming in office to fight for change, to fight for reform, to make sure things are different, you know, I, we have four-year term. And if I'm fortunate enough to do a good job and people in District 10 think I, I should get another, we only have eight years. And that time shoots by. And so you have to jump right in and focus on the things that you have seen have been issues and concerns for whatever period of time. In the case of reparations, obviously since the day I was born. And reparations is really taking into account the wrongs of Black folks here in this country and specifically to what we're able to do here in San Francisco and saying the things that you've done to create injustice, things you've done to create systemic racism, the things you've done to keep Black people from wealth and from the opportunity to be able to build what they need to make sure that we can overcome all of these negative outcomes that have systemically exist for hundreds of years. Uh, you know, reparations is the way to do that. What we did here in San Francisco is we, all of the members of the Board of Supervisors co-sponsored a resolution that we introduced from my office to focus on a reparations plan. And what the resolution says is we're going to conduct community forums. We're going to talk to people in the Black community and let the Black community lead on what they see the areas of injustice as, as and who should serve on a working group to address those issues, prioritize those issues, monetize those issues, and come up with a true reparations plan and package. And after we conduct the community forums, get all the community input from the Black community. We have conversations with our allies, and then I will legislate a 15-person working group that will do the work in terms of coming up with the strategies and the actual plan and what resources will go into addressing reparations. And to your point, a lot of people look at reparations and say, just give everybody a check and take this money and, and, and you, you can run with it. And Again, our focus is to really come up with something that's going to change how things operate systemically here in San Francisco and really reverse the negative outcomes that we've seen from generation to generation. So as we look at what reparations may be with education, what reparations may be with economic development, what it may look like around housing, what it may look like around the overcriminalization, and what you have actually seen um, during this crisis and this pandemic, as you know, Mayor Breed and I announced that we would take resources and redirect resources from the police department and invest in the black community. And so I think that this will be actually our first step towards true reparations. And what I mean by that, obviously the 120 million that the mayor has identified from the police department budget and the opportunity we have at the Board of Supervisors to even uh, reduce more resources to invest in the black community, that is one step towards reparation because it really is saying these resources are carved out specifically for the black community and the decision to decide what we prioritize, what injustices we address from those redirection of resources was decided on by the black community. And so that's why it's important to say we're, we're already taking that first step with, hundreds of, with over $100 million. There's obviously more to do 
and what that final reparations plan will look like. Again, the community will have to come together and decide what they want to see and make sure that they come up with decisions that will be long-term and tangible. And then the last thing I'll just say, the reason why we're letting the process is because I won't be here forever. Uh, current leadership of the city won't be here forever. And I want to make sure that this is something that's indoctrinated, indoctrinated in San Francisco, something that is going to be around forever. So when that package comes, it will be something that no one, no one can change and, and overturn and we get the outcomes that we're, we're fighting for. Before COVID, I had Chief Scott on the podcast um, and I've had District Attorney um, Bodine. Uh, you're the, I think you're the only supervisor I'm planning the interview. Um, is, uh, is, is, has the mayor signed on to the reparations plan? Is she, is she supportive yes. of it or no? Yeah, the mayor was definitely supportive of the reparations plan from the very beginning. Uh, as you know, Director Cheryl Davis with the Human Rights Commission, uh, she facilitates the process uh, just as she has with the process of the redirection of the funds and resources from police department for the black community. So she has been a catalyst and the true glue for a lot of this work. And so just excited about the way she dives in and jumps into everything. But uh, the mayor's on board. All my colleagues are on board. Now, as you know, the devil is in the details in terms of what we come up with and uh, what tangible out- outcomes can we achieve through this. But we're going to be fighting hard to make sure that our people get what they've deserved for hundreds of, hundreds of years here in the, in, in the country, but also here uh, for decades in San Francisco. I want, I want to kind of jump into your upbringing. But before I do, I just want to, I want to touch on a little bit about the, the hard reality of politics. Like you don't always agree with people and uh, you're, you're not afraid to fight. You know, I wouldn't say like a fist fight. You're probably not afraid of that either. But <laughs> but we we kind of, you know, you're not afraid to go in. And it's, it's not necessarily permanent enemies, right? Um, but, you know, you and I co-wrote a piece saying that the, the NAAC leadership needed to be changed. Yeah. I think we both since have come to a better place with the current leadership. Um, when you're thinking about a difference with somebody, you know, what are your sort of like general, how would you say you operate in, in that, in that like dysfunction or fight? Like what, 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 what are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to get done? Like how, what's, what's your long-term vision around a personal dispute with somebody and where we're in? I mean, I, I think it starts off for me is about doing what's right and, and what's the right thing. Um, and sometimes you are going to be ostracized, criticized. Uh, people are going to go against you for doing the things that are right. Uh, I mean, as you know, Coming into office early on, uh, we fought and pushed legislation to close Juvenile Hall here in San Francisco. A lot of elders in our community didn't necessarily support it. Uh, I don't think people really understood what we were trying to do, what uh, the outcomes were going to lead to for people of color and, and Black people. And people were used to a certain, certain method and strategy of you make a mistake, you get incarcerated, thinking that that was going to improve outcomes for our young people, which... Obviously, the data demonstrated that that was not the case. Uh, and there's so many other elements that also so prove that. But you know, when, you, when you go against the grain, uh, sometimes people are going to be upset. But if there's no discomfort, there's also no real and true change. And so I just I try to focus on the things that are right. And I'm OK with taking hits when people don't agree with me. You know, it's funny in college. I had a big argument. I just have to say this because if you talk about daring to be different or you talk about going out on a limb, 
I was having an argument with a lot of my close friends in college. And it was about how many states there are in, 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 in the U.S. And I know it's 50. I, I've been known as 50 forever. Uh, one of the folks was in my government class. We just talked about having, you know, two senators from each state and it being uh, 100 senators. I mean, but for some reason, these folks want to argue me and tell me that we had either 52 or 53 states. They started naming places like Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. And they started even trying to identify what the states were. So we got on the phone and decided we would call some of our friends that we thought were very intelligent. And they still thought like maybe 52 or 53 states. So I'm arguing for hours against my friends, folks that, you know, if I didn't stand on my convictions could maybe change my mind. But the point is that I'm trying to make is you can be the only one um, and, and still be right. You know, a lot of people think that if the masses say this is the way it should be or this is, uh, is, is something, then, um, then that's how it should be. But I knew that that was the right thing. And I was not going to let, you know, that 15 or 20 people or so tell me that uh, it was more than 50 states when I know it wasn't. And same thing with the way I approach our politics. If we're doing the right thing, uh, then that's what we have to fight for. And you're going to get hit sometimes. And sometimes, particularly because it's bold change and aggressive change. But I tell you what, we're in a great space. If we look at the example of the closure of Juvenile Hall, we're in a great space with some of our elders in terms of how we went through the friction and started to work together and understand uh, why we were fighting the way we were fighting on what we were fighting for. And so I think, you know, at the end, it put us in a better place. Could we have done things differently in that case? Yes. Just had a big fight uh, with Caltrain. I serve on the Joint Powers Board. It's a three-county um, agreement in place with San Francisco, Santa Clara, San Mateo. Uh, long story short, San Mateo County, their transportation agency is the managing operating entity of the entire railroad. And just to make it simple, the CEO of Samtrans, also the CEO of Caltrain in San Francisco and Santa Clara, we can't even fire that person. So if that person decided to run all the trains into a wall or steal all of the money, you as a member of the city and county of San Francisco, as a resident, if you complain to me, you're upset with me, I can't even carry out some of the things you might want to see because of the inequitable relationship and the inequitable power structure that existed. And so because we had this opportunity at a one eight cent tax, you know, I said, listen, if we are going to give up uh, millions of dollars for $108 million a year tax, then now we're going to address those issues of governance where you're going to say, we have say on who the CEO is. We have say on our own independent attorneys. We have say on independent auditors and things that make it equitable as you run a rail system across three counties. I was massacred in the media on Twitter, um, particularly from folks from San Mateo County and folks that ride the rail system um, because I don't think they were really understanding where we were coming from. Santa Clara and San Francisco were about to be responsible of almost 80% of revenue from this particular tax. But at the same time, we could not make decisions on leadership and management. And uh, you know, I, I probably haven't, maybe when we went against Teach for America here in San Francisco, probably the last time I, I received so much, um, so much, you know, I want to say hate emails and hate tweets and things. Um, that were against me. But again, it, it's the right thing to do. Uh, and I think I was put here by the people who voted for me to make decisions that are going to be right for District 10, right for San Francisco, and, and right for the communities that we serve. And so that's how I try to, try 
start a fight. If it's right, I'm going to go toe-to-toe, and I'm, I can be the only one. Um, again, I can be the only one that, that is, is fighting for the right thing uh, as long as I know that it's right. Yeah, they, TFA still don't like me over that contract. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, what I mean, I, I kind of want to talk about that fight in spirit, like, you know, kind of where it comes from. Most people. So before we get to that, where did you go to college? I went to undergrad at Morris Brown College in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, we were one of the greatest ex- experiences of my life. I uh, wouldn't trade it for the world and just love my alma mater. Continue to, of course, go back to homecoming uh, almost every year. Uh, a lot has changed, you know, particularly with a lot of the work that we do here now in the city. So it's been harder to give back. But, uh, yeah, that, that, that is my alma mater and I wouldn't change that for the world. Yeah, I know your affinity for for Morris Brown, so I wanted you to shout that out. I know you you pledged. I did, and there's only one fraternity to pledge. It's Omega Sci Fi Fraternity Incorporated, uh, spring of 1996. Um, and you know, Omega is really responsible for a lot of my change and success and opportunity in life in general, which I know we'll, we'll touch on as well. So yeah, so Omega Morris Brown, none of that means anything to me. <laughs> <laughs> But, you better uh, love your you better love your HBCUs, man. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Nah, I, I, I regret that I didn't go to one. But when the people do the fraternity thing and the college thing, you know, I'll just be like, when the black folk do it, I'll just be like, all right, y'all got that. I probably would have went to like, I probably went to Howard, or um, yeah, I probably went to Howard if I had to do it again. But um, but I didn't. So and you grew up, you were born in SF, but you grew up in Vallejo. Is that correct? Correct. So I left. Uh, and we moved to Vallejo, sixth grade, and went to you know finish my last year at that time. Sixth grade in Vallejo was elementary and junior high, high school. Uh, but you know, being from the city, uh, all my family was still in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Act, it probably took a couple years before I really spent a weekend in Vallejo. You know, we were back and forth so much just because that's where our network was, where our family was. Mm-hmm. And first moved to Vallejo, which oh man, that was like '86 or so. I'm dating myself, but. People thought Vallejo was an island back then. Uh, we were the first folks to leave the city uh, at the time to try to get a house and um, make that crazy commute every day. So, right, we, yeah, I want to, I want to, I want to talk about that because you know, in, in the movie Last Black Man in San Francisco, which I'm I'm not a huge fan of, um, I thought it was shot very well. But one of the things that they touched on that I know is true for a lot of black families is sort of like this: these relatives in these other cities were folks that used to live in the city. Like Antioch is a popular destination for Black folk now, but it was like Pittsburgh and Hayward and Vallejo. That was like there were like always these kind of family ties, and it sounds like you were in the middle of that, right? Like, um, that, and, I, and that's still the case today. What would you say? And I know you still enjoy a lot of good relationships, relationships in Vallejo. Or um, I would explain Vallejo. Like, what's Vallejo like? I think part of what you hit, um, you know, the the nail on the head in terms of when we got there. Um, that started to be the first trend, really, of a lot of folks moving out of San Francisco and going to places where they could own a home um, and have a, a lower cost of living. And so Vallejo was hot and popular at that time. Fairfield, uh, Stockton was you know, begin, beginning to be one of those areas. Um, Vallejo is a pretty diverse city, but a lot of, a lot of folks with Filipino heritage, some Black people, uh, of course, you know, majority Caucasian. Um, a lot of Latinos. And so it was a very diverse place. Um, but, you know, behind in years compared to San Francisco, like the buses didn't run on Sunday when I first got to Vallejo. Uh, 
every hour on Saturday. Um, you know, things ha have changed, obviously, over the, the last few decades. Um, but that was the kind of place it was, a bedroom retirement community. Marine World had just opened the same year we moved there. Um, and so, you know, it was definitely a place for, for folks that uh, were either trying to live in an area with lower cost of living or folks that actually had been there, their families that have been in Vallejo for generations. Maryland Naval Shipyard was the anchor employer, uh, much like, you know, our our opportunity here at the shipyard here in San Francisco. And so um, once Bill Clinton came into office, he uh, shut down a lot of major bases, as you know, and the employment opportunities and things shrunk uh, in Vallejo, just like uh, other areas that had a base and was affected by the closure. But yeah, that sounds like folks. Bill Clinton taking stuff from black people. That sounds like. <laughs> and, and, and people, <laughs> right? um, but, but Vallejo it was a melting pot of folks from from all over the Bay Area as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely got a special place in like hip hop music Bay Area history. There's a lot of great artists that came out of Vallejo. Uh, I know we have some a lot of uh, celebrated athletes that came out of Vallejo. How did your upbringing inform how you think about service? Like, t talk a little bit about your family. What's your family like? So I was raised by my mother, um, you know, single mom, and. You can look and see that picture behind me. That's uh, Fillmore Graham. Uh, and Fillmore Graham actually started the Continentals of Omega Boys Club in Vallejo in 1966. And uh, he saw six kids playing in the street with a flat football, asked them if they could spell football. And he told them if they could, he would come back and buy them a football. Uh, from that point, he began to question them and support them academically, started meeting with those six individuals in the parish house of the church and eventually got a building that was owned by the school district. But uh, Fillmore Graham was special in terms of his focus was to let young black men in particular know that higher education was the way to success. Um, and that if you focused and you, you achieve academically, you could do and be anything you want. And so he started the Boys Club specifically about academics. You had to write a book report once a month if you wanted to go on any of the field trips. Uh, you had to know our continental honor and be able to recite it. And his focus was just to prepare you for the next level of academics. And, and, and he also, you know, he was engineer by trade, uh, wasn't getting paid for any of this work. Uh, in fact, he never took a dime from the Boys and, Girls, Boys and Girls Club, even as he got it established and connected to Boys and Girls Clubs of America. He just really wanted to see black people achieve. And he lost his father at a young age. And so he knew a lot of young black men did not have fathers. He wanted to provide that type of support and opportunity for them. Uh, and he was a member of the Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated, which is why he named it the Omega Boys Club. Worked closely as a mentor of Dr. Joe Marshall, who uh, a lot of people may know started the Omega Boys Club here in San Francisco and has sent hundreds of us to school uh, on scholarship uh, as a result of the diaspora of Fillmore Graham. And so you know, my mom raised me by herself, uh, fortunately. He came into my life at the age of 12 and took on that surrogate father role and was really responsible for where I am today. And so you talk about where do you get your spirit of working for community and giving back. It definitely comes from being around him, watching him, being mentored by him, seeing him uh, operate and seeing him be so successful with changing and supporting so many lives. And then you can see I have uh, my favorite uh, painting by Gilbert Young. 
that says he ain't heavy at the top and has the arm reaching over and someone reaching up and basically just demonstrating that if you work to help and support others, um, that's not going to weigh you down. And it's actually an obligation and something that we are supposed to do. And that is what he taught me. And that's why you know, I can't help but uh, focus on making sure we work to improve the lives of others. Yeah, I, I happen I happen to know a little bit about just your your personal history. And there's there's one thing I just kind of want to elevate because it's you have achieved a position that most people, most Americans will would consider like successful. Not only before you got into office, but the organization that you built. But you were a teenage parent. You were expelled from high school, and you're a young black man in America. <laughs> like at, at at this time, right? This is not like a um, you know having disputes with leaders and leading uh, reparations charges and calling out Karens across America. Like that's not like the type of uh, outcome that's commonly associated. You know, that's 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 a stark turnaround. What was going on for you in high school when like all that was, when you were saddled with all of that, like kids and now these like consequences? Well, like a lot of people, yeah, I was a product of my environment. Um, you know, uh, my mom was commuting back and forth to San Francisco. I had a lot of free time on my hands uh, when I would sneak out of the Boys and Girls Club or go be on the block. Um, and so, you know, I, I definitely... Um, had some healthy relationships with women growing up, um, ended up with children at 16 and 17. Uh, wouldn't change it for the world, but definitely would not recommend uh, anyone doing it that way. Uh, was also in and out of juvenile hall um, you know, for several different types of violations, uh, stealing cars, selling dope, uh, armed robbery case I caught that I didn't commit um, and was expelled from the district uh, on three separate occasions, uh, mostly around fighting. Um, and, you know, for reasons that you and I fought against uh, while we were on the Board of Education, uh, because I have that personal knowledge of what an expulsion does to someone and how, um, quite frankly, an expulsion or even an incarceration really just leads to and feeds the prison pipeline because of the lack of options when, when you do that uh, to, to someone with already uh, not enough support or not enough resources. But what was fortunate for me, again, is Fillmore Graham, he would actually come to the dope track and get you and pull you off. He would actually uh, just do everything he could to give you that opportunity as a young person to listen to the good information and use it for your success. So what happened uh, the last time I served in juvenile hall, uh, I was already set to go to this youth leadership conference in 1992 in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, sponsored by the Omega Sci-Fi fraternity. Uh, for all young men, and it was for young men across the country. And uh, I was locked up, and I got out about a couple of weeks before it was time to go. And a lot of, a lot of other leaders and community told Mr. Graham, you know, don't take him. Uh, he's beyond salvageable. You know, he's just proven that he's, you know, can't be successful. He can't change. And why, why waste that ticket on him when you can take someone else who would benefit from the opportunity? Uh, and Mr. Graham, being who he was, uh, took me anyway, and that just changed my entire life. When we got to Atlanta, Georgia, I saw a lot of young black men, not too far from you know my age at the time, you know, having a good time, enjoying themselves. Uh, just really looked like they ran the city. And you know, as I talked to all these young men, and I, I was seventeen at the time, 
and just talking to them about how are you so successful so young? You know, most of them 23, 24. And even though I have Mr. Graham and other older members of the fraternity, those men wore suits. You know, they were all middle age at the time and, you know, worked hard in community, definitely. But I didn't know they had fun, too, you know. <laughs> so I saw all these young black men enjoying themselves and just seemed like they had the world at their hands. And I asked them, how did you get this? How did you get to this point? And every answer, the common theme was education, education, education. And Mr. Graham would talk about it. Other mentors would talk about, you know, being around all black folks in a positive environment. But experiencing that love from everybody that was around each other, experiencing uh, that level of excitement, just to see that if you could be in an all black environment where folks show nothing but love and folks are successful, folks are achieving. And seeing that, I already knew that when I got back uh, back home, I was going to uh, change my life and I was going to be at a black school that next year, actually uh, before my senior year in high school. Mm. I never had bad grades. Uh, I always had a certain intellectual capacity. My grades could have been could have been better, but definitely never were to a point where I couldn't get in to um, any school and thank God that we never went back that far backwards. But just product of my environment, really um, you know, single parent home, really thought I needed or was supposed to have things um, that, you know, you're not necessarily supposed to have at a young age or you're supposed to go work for. And so just fell off into doing things that broke the law and, and, and paid some prices for that. Yeah, you, you've never you never shied away from telling your story, but I think lo- locally you're, you're more well known about your capacity as a leader. Like that, I think there are some people that are more story heavy, um, like you know a lot about their upbringing, but their track record of moving things isn't as in depth as as yours is. So it's kind of like this thing, at least from outside of looking in, it's kind of like this mm-hmm. thing. It's kind of like secondary about Shaman Walton. Like the first thing is like all of the initiatives, and then the community building, and then the housing, and then the voter initiatives, and the the, the fights, but coming from that is uh is really remarkable it's like really remarkable and so um i didn't want to i didn't want to end our conversation about without getting into that and i think it gives you the type of um authenticity and agency to to work in the community that you now serve right because it's not like i mean you know you're still connected you're you're still down i know you from ycd and i didn't know you're a supervisor um so uh, I just wanted to celebrate that and big that up. Definitely. And I do want to say just because, you know, people tell you, well, you don't, you know, you didn't talk about it here. But, you know, I, I, I try to use my story if it's going to, to connect and help a young person change and be different, not just because, right? And so, you know, there's definitely a time and place to have these conversations and to make sure uh, that our young people know that, you know, your resume can change and you can, you can do things differently and your circumstances today uh, don't have to be the same tomorrow. And I'll give speeches about it all the time. And there's articles out there about it and everything. But again, you know, I, I like to focus on that when it, when it's going to be something that's going to be teachable and provide an opportunity uh, for change for, for our young folks. And, and that's what we do. Yeah. I mean, people are so busy paying attention to the stuff you push in. <laughs> it'll get time to get to the work you, or where you came from. Um, and, and so, Vallejo Morris College. Do you remember your GPA you got going into Morris? Morris Brown. I, had a, I graduated from high school with a two point four. Okay. Graduated from college uh, with a three point two five. 
Yeah, that's that's way higher than my college GPA. <laughs> yeah, you know, man, you know, and and college is an amazing experience. I mean, I could have, you know, worked harder, definitely in a lot of ways, but I also, you know, did a lot of different things, did a lot of debating, um, serving student government association for a little while. Try to take advantage of every opportunity that's available in college. Mm-hmm. It's not a more fun experience you're gonna have. If I could go back to any time period in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would definitely be going back to college. Yeah, yeah. I know now you're a grandfather. You're the, you're the youngest looking grandfather I've ever met. <laughs> right. uh, and um, I have two two grandbabies. Um, oh, two. Okay. Yeah, Imari yeah, and Simone. One is uh, Imari will be two pretty soon, and Simone is uh, over four months now. So mm-hmm. they 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 run everything right now. Well, I I want to get into a little bit about City Hall before we close out. Uh, so you've been there two years. Uh, you still want the job? Do you hate the job? Man, I, I, I love this job. <laughs> okay. it, it's, it's, it's funny because I was fortunate to, to serve at Young Community Developers, which, as you know, over a 40-year organization, uh, really responsible for a lot of my family getting their first job. Uh, my uncles, cousins, um, you know, a lot of people's family got their first job through Young Community Developers, some way, shape, form, or fashion. And so to be able to go back to YCD, as executive director in the community where I'm from um, and provide opportunities and work with, with, with everybody to, you know, help people achieve. I mean, you can't beat that, right? That was the, I mean, that was the best job I ever had to get paid. You know, I always just talk about when you get paid to do the things you like. And I remember Steve Jobs saying this, you know, at a commencement speech, I think it was Harvard. He was like, if you know, get paid to do the thing you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And that's the reality of when I was at YCD, uh, which of course was was hard to leave, but obviously we wanted to make changes in different ways. But no, I love my job. You know, as, as much uh, flack as we deal with, as much as I know, I can go out right now, Stevon, do something that uh, is successful for community. And then tomorrow I'm getting chastised uh, or, because it's never enough. It's never enough because we just have so much work to do, particularly in the Southeast sector of San Francisco. But I love my job. I mean, you know, if you're gonna wake up and go to work, this is this is what the the, the type of job for me. The, no day is the same. Um, you get an opportunity to 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 debate and you know challenge other people, challenge people's views. Um, you know, promote the values of folks that support you and want to see you do the things that they put you in office to do. Uh, and so, you know, being challenged every day having different opportunities every day. I can't beat it. I can't beat it. So I definitely love my job and I'm glad I'm, I'm, I'm able to do it. And in terms of some of the major barriers hindering progress uh, for District 10, if you had to point out one or two, like what, what's, what's really keeping you from doing your job better or keeping the community from moving forward? Well, one is people always, right? I mean, people uh, get in the way of people. Uh, people get in the way of us doing good things. And so, you know, working with personalities, working with people to uh, come together and, and focus on the things that we do believe in. Because, again, nobody's ever going to think 100% the same. So the, be- the best thing I, I try to do is focus on what commonalities we all have and use that to move forward and to address issues. Try to stay away from, okay, we already know what we don't disagree on. Let's talk about where we do see things out of eye, but people are obviously always a big obstacle. Uh, and even believe it or not, in a city as rich as San Francisco, 
resources are, are also a problem and an obstacle uh, because there's just not enough to go around to address every issue that we have. And COVID came in and increased the crisis in terms of our ability to use resources to address the issues in our community. So people, personalities, and, and resources are the main obstacles. Uh, but the funny part about it is, you know, the right people working together to do, to accomplish something positive is also um, your, your, your biggest support of, of, of help and, and source of help. So the, one of the biggest obstacles can also turn into be what will get you to where you uh, have achieved successful outcomes for whatever you push for. The final topic I want to hit on with you before we close out, I have like this final round of questions I ask from everybody, but you know, with when you, when you put forward the issue of reparations, one of the reasons why I wanted to get involved and support it is because there, there are these challenges that are uh, specific to the black community that I believe should be apolitical. Right. But then it kind of gets camped under a party. And mm-hmm. for me personally, I have these this like these this deep resentment against the traditional party structure on both sides. Mm-hmm. And I'm more so thinking about how to advance this apolitical agenda over party loyalty. Right. Yeah. And um, and what I see happen a lot in politics is like this, what I would call like set stuff like they always bad. We always good, <laughs> you know, Um with reparations, I wanted to see that get like I don't care like whatever president wants to pass it. You good with me? If you're getting people out of jail, you good with me? Um, how do you think about that in terms of like the Democratic Party's responsibility to the Black community and, and how it's doing right now? Do you have any criticism for it? Do you think it's doing a good job? Where do you stand on that? Well, I, again, I think that like you, there are certain issues that you know should be apolitical in politics you know, should, should not come in in the middle of um, the opportunity for you to achieve. And I'm trying to think, as you were asking that question, of something and in, in, in going back in history that was achieved that was really nonpartisan. Um, and there'll, there'll be people that'll tell you certain things like the response to, you know, uh, September, you know, 9-11 was apolitical, um, which I disagree with. Um, or, uh, you know, certain times in history where we've gotten something done with healthcare. I can't really think of a time period where one party or another didn't, not, not necessarily make it their own, uh, but didn't identify more. You know, obviously, if you look at reparations and what we're trying to do um, here in San Francisco, and even at, at a federal level, you know, it's, it has been a Democratic Party that has been more receptive and willing to stand out there and push that. Um, and you know, here in San Francisco, our politics are either left or super left, right? We're all Democrats or we are all um, you know, socialists to some degree, but it's left and more left. And I think you know, that's why reparations here, we were um, and are successful and, and do have folks that uh, are more willing to get involved and more willing to support. Uh, because of, of those values in that aspect. But with that said, it it, it, it does get politicized and, and it does become something that a party, for lack of a better term, owns just because nobody wants to agree on anything. Yeah, I think there was, if there was ever a person that would fight their own party, it would be you. 
So I'm counting on you to be the man you've been. <laughs> and if something comes yeah, I mean, up, yeah. for you to continue to but, do what you've done. But I would, I would also look at it like, you know, like even as we fight for, you know, investment, pulling resources from the police department and investing in the black community, there are folks that are allies, that are friends that will come to me and say, okay, we should do this or we should do that. And I say, hold on. You got to remember what we said we were going to do. We're going to let the black community lead on identifying the issues of concerns of their community and decide what they wanted to see happen and where these resources should go. So, you know, I love the work together. I love and respect, but this is the black community that needs to lead this, right? And so that's the way we have chosen to work with operations and redirection of resources here. Whereas, to your point, this is not about um, any particular group. It's not even about, um, you know, any particular um Democratic Party, but it really is about Black people putting putting themselves first uh, and focusing on the things that are good for them. And so, you know, I don't I don't necessarily look at it as having a fight, but I am looking at it as you said when all these injustices continue to exist, that you are going to support us as allies and let the Black community lead on things that are going to affect us and are going to improve our lives. Let us do that. And so. Uh, we do have those conversations and there are folks that mean well get involved and i tell them involvement in this case means letting us sit back and i mean you sit back and let us focus on identifying what we need and, and going out there and do it and of course we we need you to be there with us every step of the way because when you push policies that are aggressive that are gonna um, change outcomes for black folks you're gonna need everybody's support to get that done because we don't get to live life in a bubble and we are a very small minority here in San Francisco. But reparations should truly be a political among so many different other things. But I, I'm just trying to think of a point in history where we had an issue that was just 100% apolitical. And mm -hmm. even if it starts out that way, somebody grabs it. And yeah, yeah. I'm thinking about the agenda and, and you know, like whoever is the mayor, like this housing agenda has to get passed on behalf of these people. Whoever's the mayor, these jobs have to get passed on, but whoever's the president, like it becomes like the, um, like get the thing done and I'm going to work with you to get the thing done no matter who you are. That's that's more the, the mindset that I'm thinking right. about. And I, and I think you're also right that, um, and I would probably say like, you know, um, I'm thinking about Whitney Young and uh, the example of Whitney Young and then working with the Johnson and then the Nixon administration and that type of deal making. You know, I'm not interested in, in being that or doing that, but that's that's kind of what comes to mind. You ready for the final rapid round? Let's do it. All right. Uh, Mr. Supervisor Walden is incredibly busy. He's giving me a generous <laughs> amount of his time. So you don't get this, get this in, get this out. Do you meditate? I pray. Do you have a motto? Never be content with average because it's just as close to the bottom as it is to the top. Oh, we didn't get to the bumblebees. <laughs> all right, you know, that, that all comes together. <laughs> what personal weakness can you forgive in someone? Insecurity. What's a book you would recommend? Just one. One book. <laughs> uh, I would say uh, Monster by San Yuka Secure, uh, or oh, you said just one. So. You can do the second one. It's all right. Um, or um, Makes Me Want to Holler by Nathan McCall. Uh, who is more handsome, Steve-On or Shaman? <laughs> I mean, you know, I always let the people decide. That's the way I tell you. Let the people decide. If, 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 uh, last and final question. You can take a poll. <laughs> uh, 
who's going to win the presidential election. The last time I predicted that, I was wrong, man. I don't <laughs> this. But I have to go with Joe Biden. This is Kick on Monday Morning. This is Supervisor Shaman Walden, District 10, SF Native, Man of the People, with the plan. Thank you, man. I appreciate you. Appreciate you for, for just doing this and having this uh, platform for us to come on and get together. Uh, and you know, people should, should know and understand that uh, your leadership has been nothing but valuable for us here in the city as well. And so I'm proud to serve with you on education and just continue to look forward to see everything that you continue to do. So thanks for having me. Peace, peace. And thank you for listening to another episode of Cook on Monday Morning. At Cook on Monday Morning, we are building lives that make us excited about Monday morning. We believe that if we can own Monday morning, we can own the week. If we can own the week, we can own the year. And if we change our year, we can change our lives. Supervisor Walton has been a longtime friend and colleague. Uh, we don't agree on every single issue, but I respect the way that he shows up uh, and the bold action he's taking in his role on the Board of Supervisors. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about him, you can go to his website, shamanwalton.com. I'd like to thank our listeners. Thank you. I'm grateful for you. Uh, continue to subscribe to the Cook on Monday Morning YouTube channel. Uh, also, on whatever platform you listen to the audio, please rate and review the podcast. Uh, if you enjoyed this discussion, please share it with a friend. Help us grow our community of doers. Uh, again, please also take a minute to uh, subscribe and rate the podcast. Uh, if you're interested in starting your own podcast, I wrote an article on how to do it. It's called How to Start a Podcast During a Pandemic. The link is also in the description box if you want to check that out. It goes over all the equipment that I use, some of the uh, research that I did, and the, the guiding principles that I go by. So Cook on Monday Morning is a product of the Luther Harris Holding Company. It is a boutique consulting practice that focuses on building strategic partnerships between businesses and government, recruiting diversity talent to leadership roles, and helping companies drive impact in the communities that they serve. If you're interested in that, feel free to send me an email, info at steveoncook.com. Again, I'd like to thank our listeners. Thank you. And I'd like to thank the people that made our podcast possible. Uh, our videographer, David Topete. Thank you, sir. Also like to thank our copy editor, Fernando Encinco Marquez. I get up every Monday morning with the intent to create value and showcase my love to the people that keep our cities moving. Uh, they are our teachers, school lunch workers, custodians, social workers, firefighters, police officers, EMT workers, garbage collectors, bus drivers, and nurses. They are our employers. The folks that are keeping our economy moving, they are our gig workers, stocking our shelves, driving our ride shares, delivering our food to all of you. This podcast is for you. You live in places like San Francisco, Oakland, Richmond, Antioch, San Mateo, Los Angeles, Dallas, Houston, New Orleans, Baton Rouge, Miami, Orlando, the Carolinas, Virginia Beach, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Cleveland, Detroit. Harlem, Brooklyn. I also like to give a shout out to our listeners in Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, uh, and Ethiopia. To all of you, this podcast is for you. 
This message is changing the world and will continue to because of you. Until we meet again. Peace, peace, and we out.